0: Hello fellow Kentuckians and other friends and welcome to a new edition of My Old Kentucky Podcast. My name is Robert Connie and joining me as always is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today?
1: I'm doing
2: well, Robert. How are you?
0: I'm doing very well. We have two guests on the show today. We have one guest who is associated with Emerge. It is Blair Hayden. What What's Blair's title? Jasmine?
2: She's the executive
0: director. The executive director of Emerge. And she's going to talk to us a little bit uh, about the role that Emerge plays in the state, um, how people can can join up with Emerge, uh, and just kind of what the impact that Emerge uh, has had on Kentucky's elections and will have on this election coming up here in just two weeks. Um, we haven't yet recorded that one, but I'm really looking forward to it. Um, but in addition to that, we have Emerge alum Maria Sirolis, who is running in the Louisville area in the 48th District for kentucky house maria Sorolis has served in the house before um she has run four different times she's lost twice and won once so she's trying to even the score all four times have been against the same opponent she's running hard up in northeastern jefferson county and part of oldham county so um, we had her on to talk about her district I, I really liked that interview you know she's been on our show several times before jasmine what did you think about talking to maria Sorolis?
2: Yeah, I thought it was a really good interview, and and she really talked about issues that are just important to families in her district, and like she's really running to represent the the people who live in her district, and it's been really tough and really competitive, and she keeps like stepping up to the plate to do it. Um, yeah, so. I really wish
0: her luck. Yeah, absolutely. I, I I, mean, I ask, we ask every week about, like, the parts of the Democratic message that work and don't work in different areas of the state. I really think Maria Sorolis is great about capturing the issues that are important in the district and answering in democratic democratic ways um that present good solutions to problems uh that that people have at the doors um you know you can't ignore what Dad. people are telling you you can't ignore the issues that people think are important but you can come up with creative solutions and good solutions that solve the problem in ways um that that are true to our ideology so i really appreciate her for that and i think that her especially her she is a very good fit in that district has been all four times and that's why she's been so successful it's been very close even each time including the time that uh, she won so I am um, really hoping, wi- wishing her luck in in uh, you know in two weeks but we have we have lots of stuff to talk about before that first of all Jasmine's gonna talk to us about partisanship and judicial elections I have a thing to talk about regarding standardized test scores which have dropped across Kentucky talk a little bit about that and uh, we also have a couple of ballot shenanigans that are going on one story we've addressed a little bit before we're gonna flesh that out a little bit and also talk about a different uh, person who's been kicked off the ballot here in Kentucky so without any further ado, Jasmine, tell us about partisanship in judicial elections.
2: Okay, so we've, we've talked about this quite a bit on the show, but there, there's a few kind of like newer things to talk about. Um, we've talked about a couple high profile judicial elections throughout the election cycle, the two biggest ones being the Supreme Court District 6 race along the river and in Northern Kentucky, um, and then the Franklin Circuit Court race now a conservative pack called fair courts america has targeted those races as well as the second district supreme court race which we haven't really talked about very much Um, and in that race court of appeals judge kelly thompson is running against sean alcott you know i don't live in any of these districts um but just from the outside partisanship probably seems the most evident in the Sixth District Supreme Court race from one candidate in particular. Um, Representative Joe Fisher is challenging Justice Michelle Keller and making it very known that he's a conservative challenger. Joe Fisher, of course, has been one of the strongest, maybe the strongest anti-abortion advocate in the House. Um, And his yard signs have an elephant on the top of the sign and then like his name for supreme court and then across the bottom they say the conservative republican
0: yeah i I think that is one of the things that really separates this race from the other two on your list is the other the other two on the list certainly have been injected with partisanship from like third part third party actors but this is the one where Like the actual can- the actual candidate is taking a partisan stance. It seems like
2: it, it says Republican on his signs, and judicial races are nonpartisan. Um, and so he's actually filed a lawsuit due to a potential judicial conduct commission investigation regarding partisan partisanship rules. So in September, the judicial conduct Commission said it was investigating Fisher for possible campaign violations involving promoting his party affiliation um, and discussing opinions on certain issues that might come before him, including abortion. And so he filed a lawsuit in federal court arguing his free speech rights have been violated. He also requested a restraining order to prevent the judicial conduct investigation from happening. Um, and this week, uh, Judge Caldwell denied the request to block the conduct investigation because at this point she said that there there's no, like, credible threat of action, of, of enforcement, because the Judicial Conduct Commission said the only thing that, that they even have open is, like, a preliminary investigation at this point. Like, nothing has happened to
0: him. Yeah, that seems like a dumb lawsuit, right? You have to, like, have something happen before you can file a lawsuit at all, right? That's, like, one of the few rules that there is <laughs> that I know about. Yeah.
2: yeah, so, so you know, right now, if if there is an investigation, of, you know, it's the prelimin- preliminary investigation is, is allowed to continue. Um, someone else has joined that lawsuit because there's a... There's a, a race with similar dynamics in Northern Kentucky. So Robert Winter, who is um, a conservative anti-abortion Court of Appeals candidate who's running against Judge Susan Citrullo on the Court of Appeals, um, he's also being investigated by the Conduct Commission for the same kind of partisanship allegations, um, and he's joined Joe Fisher's lawsuit. And so the same ruling went for him. Um, there's no credible threat of action at this point. So I'm not, I'm not granting this restraining order. And so um, that's, that's where we are with the, sis, the sixth district race <laughs> right now. The second district race, that's the race, um, Kelly Thompson and Sean Alcott. And what's going on there is a little bit more. Unclear to me. I think um, so. That race is for Justice Minton's seat because he's retiring. He is the Chief Justice, and um, that race encompasses Bowling Green and surrounding counties. Um, but it kind of goes like north all the way up to like Bullet Hardin Spencer County, and McCon- Mitch McConnell, Brett Guthrie, um, and other. Republicans are supporting Sean Alcott, who is an attorney who works in healthcare law. And then Kelly Thompson, by the way, Sean Alcott is a woman and Kelly Thompson is a man.
0: I'm glad you I clarified that. Clear. I would have been confused. Yes.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Sean Alcott works in healthcare law. Kelly Thompson is a judge on the Court of Appeals who was elected to the Court of Appeals in November 2006. And his political history is kind of interesting. He ran against Martha Lane Collins for the Democratic nomination to clerk of the Court of Appeals in the 1970s. Um, And he said that he switched um, and became a Republican in the 90s and then became an independent in 2005 before becoming a registered Republican again this year. He was also a longtime public defender um, before becoming a judge um but these two candidates have declined to talk about their stance on abortion so they kind of stayed away from making this race really partisan
0: even and, though mitch mcconnell and brett guthrie and other republicans have have weighed heavily the candidates themselves yes. are not being partisan but we can see like but basically really, what's going on yeah
2: yeah so it, it seems that others know their affiliation based on who's donating to who um but you know kelly thompson was asked about um his politics and and that's kind of what he said and he said i just don't feel any partisanship at all i've lost all my passion for partisanship by being a judge for 16 years And 99.9% of cases that we decide are just grinded out dispute resolution between parties. They don't have anything to do with politics. And I like that quote because it's pretty true. Like, as a judge, it mostly aside from like these redistricting cases that the Supreme Court hears and some of these few and far between cases most of these cases are truly just disputes between two parties with you know a couple issues that only these two parties care about and they're just grinding it out and trying to sort out questions of law and that's all it is and there is no partisanship to it and it truly is about like being independent and just sorting out the law and so I, I think that, you know, that that really is what it's supposed to be like. Um, right. But he, he said, like, you know, a lot of people have told me that they, would, they won't vote for me if I'm not a Republican. So I do think that's why he changed his registration back.
0: yeah and i mean you know this is not a like that that journey you just described about you know being a democrat in the 70s running for this office that doesn't even exist anymore uh switching to uh the republican in the 90s um you know probably during like the reagan bush years and then going independent um as like george w bush's president and then switching later that's not an uncommon journey for a kentucky kentuckian like that is a pretty common story for yeah so it's he he it doesn't seem like or that doesn't seem like their politics are too too far apart from um yeah from what a lot of other Kentuckians have have experienced over the past few years, her yeah, past and several clerk, years.
2: And, and the clerk p- position still exists. It's it's just not something we like vote on anymore. But yeah, so while Kelly Thompson likely has more name recognition because he's been a judge. Um, Sean Alcott does have a slight fundraising lead with $129,000 to his $112,000. And then this PAC, Fair Courts America, has also gotten involved in this race um, and is doing ads in that race as well. And then um, they are also doing ads in the Franklin Circuit Court race where we have talked about this one for quite some time. Judge Philip Shepard faces Joe Bilby, who is um, Ryan Quarles' top staff attorney. Um, and Philip Shepard has raised over $500,000, which is over double what Joe Bilby has raised. But Bilby also has the support from these conservative PACs. And so I think he's more than made up for that um, through those ads, through what they've spent in advertising. Um, so You know,
0: that's a lot of it's so so much money
2: that, yeah, over five hundred thousand dollars has gone into a circuit court race. It's going to be like one
0: hundred dollars per vote or something. That's insane. (laughs) It's crazy. Yeah.
2: And so, you know, those. Those are kind of the the three big ones, I guess. Um, Austin Horn of the Herald-Leader wrote a really good piece about the partisanship of these races, and he talked to UK election law professor Joshua Douglas, who said that the Kentucky Supreme Court has really been able to remain nonpartisan thanks to the leadership of Chief Justice Menton. And I think he's right about that. And we definitely like risk to lose that um, depending on the outcome of the Supreme Court elections. And, you know, some states have partisan judicial elections and i think a lot of republicans in the legislature want that and depending on the outcome of these elections um you know that that's a bill we could see in the future and so i do think that good showings from um, Justice Keller and Judge Kelly Thompson. Hopefully, that would that would keep our judicial elections nonpartisan. And Judge Justice Keller, I think, is about as nonpartisan of a candidate as you could get. Like, it, it's insane to me that they're running ads that like she's um, like a socialist. Yep. <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, it it is. It's (laughs) tough. It's really tough, Uh, you know. And we do stand to lose all of this. And and there are many states, not just that. I mean, the way that different states do their Supreme Court and the partisanship. Like, there's some states where, like, parties nominate, but then the party that nominated them is not like actually on the ballot. So you have to like. And sometimes it's like um, a non-partisan. A primary but then the parties yeah, can add it's there like, are
2: lots of weird ways to do it
0: yeah so there, there's lots of different yeah like weird ways to do it but the the thing is we have seen many many partisan supreme courts through the years um, with the with Supreme Courts becoming much much more partisan in different states and it hasn't been good anywhere that it's happened Um, and it really has just like eroded democratic protections in a lot of places as places increase their partisanship um, you know, they, they basically make races more difficult to win for the other party and, and really just kind of erode the importance of voting, um, which is really dangerous, I think. So, you know, I think it really is in Kentucky's best interest in a really um, good part of Kentucky's government that the courts have remained uh, pretty neutral. So, yeah, here's hoping that we're able, we're able to keep that. All right, let's move on and talk a little bit about standardized test scores um okay so i want to talk about two different test scores the first is the national assessment of educational progress or i neap nape i don't know if it's abbreviated n-a-e-p it's a test that's been administered to nearly every school district in the country since the passage of no child left behind um no child left behind made it like kind of like if you want to continue to get funding for your school you got to take this test so the idea behind the test is to measure the progress of learning agro- across different students uh, across different students across time so So it always tests fourth and eighth graders. But of course, the people in fourth and eighth grade are always different. And it it has been often criticized for like year to year changes, because it's like, you might have one class of very smart children, and then the year behind them, they're, you know, they struggle a little bit more. And then is it really your school that's struggling? Or is it just the random mix of students that you have in that specific grade in that specific time? So that's one criticism of the NAEP test. Anyways, in Kentucky and across the country, scores have declined significantly since the last time the data was released, which was 2019, which was before the pandemic. The most precipitous drop was for math scores for eighth graders, which dropped from 278 to 269. I don't really know if this is on a scale or I don't know what those numbers represent, but they do are getting smaller. They're they're getting worse. Um, and, And that was in Kentucky. They dropped by eight or by nine points. Um, And that's in line with the national decline for 281 to 273. Uh, Kentucky is like remarkably average with the NAEP. Uh, They're they're one point. Kentucky is one point below average in math and exactly the same um, in in reading for fourth graders. And they're four points below average in math and one point below average for reading among amongst eighth graders. Very much like right in the middle, right in the middle of of the country. Meanwhile, the state's own assessment, the Kentucky Summative Assessment, came out last week uh, at nearly the same time, and the results were quite similar. They showed significant decreases during the pandemic. The KSA, though, is a new test. So SB 158 in 2020 changed the way that schools were evaluated and represented an almost immediate change from the previous system. So, you know, uh, we can't really decide on a system. Of course, the political world changed. Uh, this was right after Andy Bashir was elected, but we still had, uh, you know, a Republican legislator, a legislature. So, you know, this whole thing changed pretty quickly right under our feet. The KSA data is released at the school level, um, so it is even more susceptible to, like, uh, you know, year-over-year year type type situations. And, and nearly every news outlet in the state, of course, whenever this number comes out, they immediately breathlessly report on their local schools and how their numbers have changed uh, over the year uh, or over the, the time period that, that has changed. So both the NAEP and the KSA are standardized tests and both have been heavily criticized as too instructive to policymakers regarding the quality of schools and students, and they have also been criticized as boiling down too many interconnecting issues into a single number, which is then used for accountability purposes in determining whether or not a school is quote-unquote good or bad – um, and, and honestly, I'm very sympathetic to those complaints. I, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a data person. That's my job during the day. And I, and I don't really know what we're supposed to do with these test scores. How is this informing us? What is this prompting us to do? If we see these numbers going down, is that going to cause us to change course in any way? Did we know ahead of time that if the numbers went up, we would change? If they went down, how would we change? Uh, what, what, are, what are we doing here? What is the point of this? Um, I, 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 I think it was very obvious that students have been struggling since the pandemic. That that obviously was going on. Anybody who's been around a child or been around kids in school, you knew that that was going to happen. But it's really hard to put into context the relative decline between schools, between Kentucky and other states. Is Kentucky doing worse than other states because of the pandemic? Do these numbers tell us that? I don't really think that they do, but you know, maybe they do and maybe they don't. Uh, anyways, this, this kind of gets to the, the hard of my issue here which is like what is the point of these numbers what are they instructing us to do and and what do they tell us in terms of you know how we can form policy that makes a difference to students and helps them get a better better education the thing about these systems is that they're inherently political and they're really difficult to use without wading into really fraught discussions like they these things are very (laughs) the scores at the school level especially tightly correlated with poverty, tightly correlated with race, tightly correlated with just about every social determinant of health, social determinant of of uh, I- just basically any social issue you can imagine. These numbers are tightly correlated with them. And so it- it's really impossible to say, is it the quality of the school that's impacting them? Is it the issues of their home life, uh, issues around their neighborhood, issues around, uh, you know, uh, systemic injustice, or all of all these things stewing together in the same sort of situation that comes out with this number. And, and just whenever you come up with a number, all basically you're doing is reinforcing this situation that already exists. Um, so I've been talking for a second. Jasmine, I mean, do you have any thought about these numbers in, uh, in particular, or, or how these numbers might impact uh, Kentucky policy around education?
2: I mean, I don't have any thoughts about the numbers specifically i think i disagree with all you with everything you said i'm i'm sympathetic to the complaints about standardized testing and i don't know the solution and i i don't know how to measure how kentucky is doing against the rest of the country i don't know how to measure how how much worse are we doing since the pandemic, since everyone else? And, you know, I think a lot of people have written and talked about, you know, test scores and poverty and using test scores to determine good schools and bad schools and how that's a a bad way to do things. Um, and, And so I, I don't, I don't disagree with anything you said. I, I think everything you said is, is how I feel about it. <laughs>
0: Yeah, just to kind of close the loop here, uh, you know, Kentucky did just change our system, like I mentioned, you know, back in 2020. So so that bill, just to remind everybody, um, you know, it was introduced at the beginning of session. And and I think that the intention was to have like a long session wide debate about it, to talk about it, to get it in front of people. But of course, the 2020 session uh, was interrupted by a global pandemic. Um, You know, it passed in the teeth of that pandemic. Uh, You know, there wasn't that session long discussion about the changes to the system. And basically, it was on their to do list. And whenever they came back for that short period of time in the middle of the pandemic, they just went ahead and took care of it. They went ahead and passed it as it was written. Uh, I'm not really sure if there was much discussion. I don't even think if there was discussion, if people's heads were really there. I mean, think about where you were in the middle of the pandemic, like this was like, March, April, May 2020. Um, You know, so this is this is the system that we're under, this is the system that passed, it was right in the middle of the pandemic. Um, So so that's kind of the, the, the system that or under now uh, and, and you know in addition the, the courier journal just recently published a very long investigation into reading skills uh, of jcps students and, and the thesis to that piece depends really heavily on the results of different types of test scores over time comparing kentucky and mississippi looking at the changes to the k prep scores which was the precursor to these things i think it's still i don't really know if k prep is gone or if it's just in a different context now or what but anyways um th- this is the type this are the types of discussions that are happening that depend on test scores. And and I think when you just like, look at these numbers. Okay, look, I I am I think measurement is important. And I do think we need to measure the quality of our, our schools, we need to figure out what's going on with our students, we need to figure out how to make our schools better, we need to give teachers the tools that they need to do their jobs better. I think that testing may may be an important piece of that evaluation. Metrics are certainly an important part of that. But in order to come up with a system that works for everybody, you got to you got to do the hard work ahead of time of getting everybody on the same page, and inside of a system that we all agree with, so that when the numbers come out, we're not fighting about the test more than we're actually fighting about how to make our schools better. I, I just feel like at this point, whenever these numbers come out, it's just like, hey, look, here's a number, it went up or it went down. And that doesn't change anything that happens. And nobody changes anything about how they they operate their schools based around those numbers, um, and, and just as they exist, they don't really serve any purpose whatsoever. And that we really need to rethink and reevaluate what we're doing in terms of how we measure the quality of our schools. So, yeah,
2: and I don't pretend to be an expert on educational policy, and that's why like it's it's hard for me to even like weigh in or, or add to di- the discussion on things like this. And. People try to, but <laughs> I think, and that's why I think it's hard because um, we don't, we haven't thought through that. Yeah, <laughs> and, I, and I think we, we. I- we
1: need to
0: I mean I, I do think that there are people in the world um, and I think that this is something that exists on both sides of the political aisle like the partisan divide um, that that believe that just like by putting a number out there um, it will inherently make the world a better place because you have something to measure against and I just really chafe against that I just don't think that that's going to solve any problems and in fact will introduce new problems and that doing the hard work ahead of time like I just think that that's so important uh, and, and it may be impossible which means. Maybe why people don't want to do it um, yeah all right well that's enough about standardized test scores they were just huge in the news last week everybody was talking about them so I figured we need to talk about it at least a little bit all right Last thing we want to talk about today before we get to our two interviews with Blair Hayden and with Maria Sorolis and that is some shenanigans going on uh, in the ballot for Kentucky House seats. So two candidates in Louisville, one from each party, have been removed from the ballot in the upcoming election. So the first one is Matt Fott for Democrats, and the second one is Susan Tyler Witten for the GOP. So we talked about Matt Fott briefly before, but he was removed in late September because it was discovered that he was not eligible to run as a Democrat in the primary as he had been registered as a Republican until January of this year. Matt's a good friend of ours. Really sad that that happened. It really sucked. I was really disappointed that it all went like this. Um yeah, the candidate who originally was filed to run in this seat um, got redistricted out of it. Matt Fott did not file to run in the primary but was able to take that ballot line when the Kentucky Democratic Party put him forward as their nominee, but because of legal technicalities, he was removed because of that thing I just mentioned. Democrats were then able to replace Matt Fott with uh, a different candidate, Anne Sermershine, but the Secretary of State decided that since ballots had already been printed that, you know, I guess the paper bill was too high or something they couldn't get them reprinted uh and therefore she could not be added to the ballot so um she sued but a judge agreed with the secretary of state and now kevin Bratcher will likely be elected although miss sermershine is mounting a right-end candidacy very close by in District 31 in Louisville, uh, Susan Tyler Witten has been removed from the ballot as a GOP challenger. Miss Witten won a contested GOP primary in that race, but it was discovered that her paperwork wasn't in order. So, in order to file for office, you need to have two residents from the district sign your paperwork. The two people who signed Miss Witten's paperwork were family members who live in District 31 as it is drawn currently, but she filed to run before the redistricting map was made into law. So since they did not live in District 31 at the time when they signed the paper, um, a Louisville judge ruled that she could not stand for election. Um, and based on the same rules that the Secretary of State said about ballots being printed, she is... Uh, right now not on the ballot and her case though is currently being appealed so anyways both of these challenges, in my opinion, are stupid. <laughs> um, I think both candidates should be on the ballot. Uh, kicking people off the ballot because of technicalities isn't a great look for anybody, but it's a game that you have to play, right? If if one par- the parties are going to play the game, and if you had the opportunity to file suit around a technicality, you'd be dumb not to, right? You, ha- you kind of have to. The point is to have more representatives than the other person, so you need to do it. I guess it's in the hands of judges to have a wider breadth of like hey no it's put them on the ballot that's what I think that they should do Uh, I don't know Jasmine what do you think about all this
2: I mean I think that people should follow the rules to run for office but I think in this redistricting situation it's really difficult to follow the rules because you didn't know what they were
0: yeah absolutely so
2: I would probably like uh, be le- more lenient here. Um, I think something kind of interesting about this Susan Tyler Witten race is her husband is Dwight Witten, who has a, a show, a radio show on WHAS, and they have like, he has like not been quiet about this at all, in his. <laughs> been like very loud on social media about sue foster the democrat running in this seat and has like been very insulting and rude about her and i i don't know what's going to happen with the appeal in that case um but that race is kind of wild. It's, it's pretty close to where I live, so I kind of see some of it.
0: Yeah. No, I didn't realize that that guy had a show on 84. I don't listen to that radio yeah, station that um, often. but
2: he, he has a show with Tony Vanetti. Oh. The Tony and Dwight show.
0: Okay. Well, yeah. yeah. The only time I listen to WHAS is when I go to the dentist office. My dentist, I think, has had WHAS on in, in the radio in his waiting room for 40 years, um, basically my entire life. So yeah, that's the only time I really listened to WHS. I didn't,
2: I didn't realize, I don't listen to it, but I like know who Tony Vanetti is. I didn't realize that, that Dwight was a, yeah. a big conservative, but there you go. Turns
0: out. All right. Well, that's it for this part of the show. Let's get to our interview with Blair Hayden.
2: Blair Hayden is the executive director of Emerge Kentucky, serving in her role from November, 2016 to May, 2020, and then resuming her role in January of 2022 a native of Springfield, Kentucky, Blair's background is in social work and special education. Her previous positions include Buckhorn Children and Family Services and she also spent nine years serving in the public school system as the director of 21st Century Community Learning Centers where she coordinated programs for students focusing on drug and violence prevention. Blair also served in Governor Steve Bashir's Office of Early Childhood um, before returning as the executive director for Emerge Kentucky, she also spent time as the political director for Amy McGrath's campaign for U.S. Senate. So, Blair Hayden, welcome to my old Kentucky podcast.
3: Thank you. I'm so happy to be here with you all.
0: Yeah, we're thrilled to have you. I didn't realize you were from Washington County. That's a uh, yeah, not that far from here. So
3: that's right. Yeah
0: we we had a bunch of friends from Washington County in college. I didn't. Yeah, that's cool. My
3: mom's from Barkstown originally. Mm-hmm, so. Okay.
0: There you go. All right, so we have talked about Emerge quite a bit on the show. I mean, we talked to, I don't know. Twenty of your different candidates throughout the years, a lot of people who've been through the emerge program have been on my old Kentucky podcast, and so we've had a lot of love, um, both for your candidates, for your staff, for a lot of people who who've touched emerge through the years. Um, and you know, we wanted to have you on so that you could talk a little bit about that. Uh, not to mention, I almost forgot to say, Jasmine, also a recent alum, so that's cool too. Um, so you know, tell us about the program. What is it? Who who's eligible to do it? What do they learn? Just tell us what what people need to know. About about the program?
3: Well, um, we train Democratic women to run for elected office. We are one of 28 states across the country, and the exciting thing about Kentucky is that we were actually the ninth state to get this training program, and we were considered the first Southern state. Uh, we were founded by jennifer a Moore, and uh we have now had uh 13 years of a training um 13 different classes of women 292 women across the commonwealth from paducah to pikeville we have 45 of our alums currently serving in elected office we have 58 women that are going to be on the ballot in november um we have really been working to build the bench for every type of office from local all the way up. Um most proud of um, our Lieutenant Governor, Jacqueline Coleman, who's a Merge Kentucky alum. Um, You know, we're really working to change the face of Kentucky politics. We have nine women serving in the Kentucky General Assembly and um, in every office all the way down. And so what we do is we spend six months training on the skills it takes to run an effective campaign. Uh, We usually spend one Saturday a month and then um, one weekday, where we go to Frankfurt and shadow our Democratic women legislators, um, but we truly talk about what it takes to run your campaign. Um, we don't necessarily get into policy, but with with that focus and with a focus of building a network across the Commonwealth of folks that want to support and help get Democratic women elected to office, um, we we've really been successful over these past. Uh, 13 years and we're looking for uh the next class for 2023 um we have our applications open now they're online and then we interview in person and and we select the next class of women so um there's my long spiel on that
0: yeah no that is that 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 is answers a lot of the questions that we had so that's awesome um we i did just kind of want to ask a little bit more so if if there are women that are interested in running for office that might want to apply um tell us a little bit about what the training looks like i mean i'm sure they have in their their mind that it's a political training like you said it's not super policy focused it's how to run your campaign but there's lots and lots of things that go into running a campaign there's lots and lots of things that you got to learn what are the types of things that people that go through the program learn as they do emerge
3: Sure, we'll call, call them the nuts and bolts of, of running your campaign. And I do want to mention that you can find uh, the topic of each training online on our website, emergeky.org, which is also where you can find the applications that are open for each year's class. Um, we train on public speaking, we train on fundraising, we train on um, field work um all of the of the little pieces that um you you would think that everybody just knows um and turns out you know there's a real art to this about should you hire a consultant um you know especially with things changing during covid it's staying up to date with were we knocking on doors or were we just dropping off literature and you know how important is canvassing how many yard signs should you really be purchasing uh and what kind of um, website you should have? Is it important to have social media? So it, it's really all the building blocks um, to how to have your campaign team and um, and how to get started.
2: Yeah, so there's all kinds of different like leadership programs out there. And there's also a lot now there's a lot of like political training programs and like digital political training programs out there. What do you think makes Emerge a unique program?
3: Well, that answer is very easy, Jasmine. The thing that is unique about us is our leadership training program is specifically for women and for Democrats. Uh, but within that, uh, most of us out there in um, these trainings are working to partner with each other. I think we're all trying to, um, to help our candidates to, uh, have the right information. And so, um, you might find somebody from eMERGE presenting at a different training. Um, and I'm definitely pulling in people to talk about digital and to talk about, um, how things are changing, you know, every day. And, and, but the most specific thing about us is that it it is for women only and for Democrats and that we um, are very... Uh, much focused on having a diverse group of women um, across the entire Mm -hmm. Commonwealth. And um, that's something I wanted to mention in our applications and for any women that out there who are interested in running for office um, and are considering um, our training is that we don't have a litmus test. Uh, It's truly, are you passionate about helping your community and about running for office? Um, And other than that, we have every type of background, every age, and um, and we think that's important to bring that uh, to these elected offices.
2: Absolutely. So there is an election coming up in less than two weeks now, and I know that there are some eMERGE women on the ballot. We're going to have one on our show today. Um, so are there any races that you'd like to highlight?
3: So... There are too many to list, um, but I will say, um, you know, we have a number of our um, state legislators who are up for re reelection, uh, following closely with Senator Karen Berg's race. Um, he, in Jefferson County, Representative Patty Mentor in Bowling Green. Uh, we have a few first time uh, legislative candidates in Northern Kentucky, uh, Representative, um, excuse me, hopefully represented (laughs) by uh, Chris Brown and, Mm -hmm. um, and Rene Henrick. Um, we have Lindsay Burke, um, in Fayette County who, um, is unopposed in the general and, uh, will be replacing representative Kelly flood after her retirement. Uh, we have Beverly Chester Burton, who's mayor in Shively, but, um, is running for, uh, representative Johnny Jenkins seat. And, um, M- Representative Mackenzie Cantrell running for court of appeals yeah. now with the redistricting. Um, that was, that's the choice that she made. And we have lots of local races, city council, city commission, um, some clerks. We have several in Hardin County. Um, I'd like to, uh, John Alma Barnett, uh, Barnett running for Bowling Green city commission and for reelection there, Dana Beasley Brown, uh, Terry Owens for Radcliffe, uh, city council and uh we have a couple women who will uh who are first time uh women and black candidates in um mccracken county and that's uh, that's keisha curry and yolanda johnson and we're really excited for them to um to make history there and hopes that they'll make history. Um, Mayor in uh, Cave City, uh, Letitia Klein, she has been serving on city council and now running for mayor there. Um, And Letitia has been, um, working to preserve a lot of old buildings in Cape city. So there's um, lots of cool little places all across the Commonwealth uh, where we have alums that are changing their communities and, um, and we're watching them closely in their races on election day. And um, and I want to mention Angela Evans, who uh, will not be on about November because she won her primary yes. in May and has already been sworn in as the Fayette County attorney Um after beating, a uh, 18 year, uh, I believe it was incumbent. So, um, we're, we're making lots of changes and, uh, and certainly glad to shout about it.
0: Yeah, a lot of names that you listed there, people that uh, longtime listeners of Mile Kentucky podcast certainly know, uh, and also uh, hopefully we'll have some more of them in the future once they get elected. So that's awesome. You did mention that there's an application that is out there that exists. So tell us about that. Um, where is it? Where can people apply for it? What do they need to have ready if they want to apply? Um, and what's the process like after somebody uh, sends that away? What, what can they expect?
3: Thanks for for asking that, Robert. Um, So our applications are the same across the country. Um, We, each state uses the same online application and that's at um, emergeky.org. For anyone out there who has a problem with, um, with accessing the internet, there's many times I've printed it out and mailed it to somebody. So I certainly don't want that to be a barrier to applying. Um, it is uh, really just some short questions about yourself and why you want to run for office, um, who inspires you. Uh, it does ask for two letters of recommendation, um, and those are just gone out. They go out through email um, and they're virtual, but I can always take them over the phone or a mail in letter. Um, so it's it's not too lengthy of an application process, but um, it is really wanting to get to know about the person and what they, um, what office they might want to serve for, serve in, and why they want to serve. And then um, we will select um, applicants to be interviewed and that involves our board of directors. We have 14 women serving uh, on our board from across the Commonwealth that have been involved in the Democratic uh, Party for a long time. And then we have our alums who also help us to interview. Um, and we just, we just want to get to know the woman and, and really do they want to serve for the right reasons. Um, and then after that, we select a class um, somewhere between 20 and 30 women for each year. So we will do that um and announce our new class in uh december so i um will kick off the new training at the end of january so i do encourage anyone out there to uh apply now emergeky.org um i'm happy for people to email me Blair Hayden at EmergeKY.org for questions. And I'm I'm certainly happy to share my phone number, meet folks for coffee and talk about if this is the right time for them to apply and to go through our training or connect them with other women that they're interested um, in learning about their experience and what that was like in our training. And Jasmine can tell them all about it too.
2: I'm glad you told everyone about the letter of recommendation because I didn't notice that until A couple days before and luckily the people who wrote mine Robert wrote one of mine
0: I got you Jasmine
2: last minute for me and I'm very grateful for them and what I'll add is I think the best thing about emerge is that they do a really great job of helping women feel like they have the confidence and the things they need to be the candidate and there were so many women in my class who were so involved in their communities, just deeply involved in their communities, but no one had said, you be at the front, you take the mic and watching those people step out in front and have the confidence, like to talk in front of a group and things like that. I think that is what is really cool about Emerge um, is just giving people the confidence to step up and, um, And so I think that is the greatest thing about the program. And so before we let you go, how can people support Emerge Kentucky?
3: Well, I'm glad you said that too, Jasmine. Um, Talking about taking the mic and stepping up front and having that confidence. They say it takes seven times for a woman to be asked before she decides to run for office. So everyone out there listening, if you don't have an interest in running for office yourself, think about the women around you. Think about the women that are working in their communities Mm -hmm. and who do you know that should apply for office and encourage them to do that. Um, We have another place on our website called recommend a woman and we we encourage folks to recommend the women in their lives to step up and to run and um you know support the women that you know that are running locally and um and above and uh knock doors for them make calls for them uh write them checks and emerge emerge needs the same we are a nonprofit and um it takes, um, you know, a certain amount of money to do a training class each year. And so we are raising money through, we have tuition, but we want to offset that. And it costs not be a barrier to any of our women. So um, we are always raising money as well. Um, and, and just, you know, being um, a, a carrier of our message uh, to folks in your community to, um, to get other women to go through this training.
2: Awesome. Thanks, Blair.
3: Thank you, Jasmine.
0: All right. That's Blair Hayden. Let's get to our interview with Maria Sorolis. Go ahead.
2: Maria Sorolis is a former member and current Democratic candidate for the Kentucky House of Representatives for the 48th district in Northeastern Jefferson and Oldham County. She was first elected in 2018 by about 300 votes and then lost in 2020 by about 600 votes she's running for election against her opponent from the 2018 and the 2020 race uh during her time serving in frankfurt she was a leader on the issue of government transparency and open elections sponsoring multiple bills on open meetings and open records as well as several bills about voting rights um so maria sorolas welcome back to my old kentucky podcast
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah, I made a mistake when I wrote that intro because I said it's the third time in a row and really it's the fourth time. Fourth. In a row. That's right, because like, you
1: like Groundhog Day. Yeah,
0: it is, because you ran in. Yeah, it's the same the same matchup in 2016, 18, 20, and 22, and that's a, kind of where we wanted to start. So, yeah, you find yourself in this situation, like Groundhog Day, running for the fourth time in a row against the same person for this seat. Uh, you've won it once, and you you hope to even the score this time. Um, so, why, why, why did you decide to do this after winning, losing, coming back? Uh, you're back in the political arena this year. It was a heartbreaking loss. It was a thrilling win. Uh, what, yeah, what, what, what went through your head throughout this entire time to get you back to the spot that you're in now?
1: The district continues to change. Um, obviously, redistricting has affected uh, the composition of the district, but this area is continuing to gravitate more and more democratic as people move out from the city center. And unfortunately, my opponent has not done a good job of being transparent He has not represented the interests of the district well, and I felt it was unfair to the voters to let him uh, run without opposition, and that appeared to be what was going to happen.
2: So let's talk about your district now. The 48th district is situated in Northeast Jefferson and Oldham counties and underwent a few small changes during the redistricting process. So can you tell us about the current 48th district and the type of voters who live there?
1: Actually, the uh, changes were more uh, substantial than you might think. They took, um, in redistricting, all of the um, area that was to the east, roughly, of 22 and put that into Tina Bojanowski's district. And then they gave, put in the 48th, um, the portions of Tina's district that were to the west of 22 which includes a lot of land down by the river. Mm-hmm. Uh, bring back brings back into the forty eighth where they had been before the woods of Saint Thomas and uh, Falls Creek. Those things, those neighborhoods, returned to the forty eighth. And then they gave me uh, gave the forty eighth a very large additional precinct in Oldham. So it has changed the composition of the district which would have become probably 50-50 Republican-Democratic to pretty strongly Republican.
2: Yeah. So, you know, you've been doing this a a few cycles now. So at this point, a lot of voters in the 48th do know you well. Um, So can you tell us a little bit about what it's been like running in this seat that has been so competitive?
1: Well, it's been always great to talk to the voters and see what's on their mind and their concerns. One of the things I have said repeatedly is that I could go down any street in the 48th district, knock on 15 doors and ask them what was on their minds. And probably 80% of us would agree. And none of that's what's going on in Frankfurt. And that's the problem. Mm -hmm. It doesn't take, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to be a good representative, but you have to have some common sense and you have to be willing to exercise that common sense And that's not happening. Frankfurt's spending all of its energy on these culture war issues that divide people and really are not moving Kentucky forward. And out here, we are business minded. We want an economy that grows. We want to be a place that attracts young people and the jobs and industries of the future and passing law after law that seeks to take us backward does not help what people out here want. Yeah, uh,
0: that, I, I actually want to dig in a little bit deeper on that, you know, have you, you know, as you've kind of gone out to, to talk to the people at the doors, have you gotten a chance to, to talk to people who, um, you know understand state government um, you know I, I, that's kind of a broad question but I mean so much so much of our politics is now national but having been in a, a district where there has been a competitive state representative race for several cycles in a row that's different than a lot of other places I mean most seats across Kentucky um, are not competitive one way or the other where often you know people just don't have an, don't even really have to try and and do you feel like because it's been such a competitive race that people have have a better handle on uh, the issues that are going on in Frankfurt, or is it is it just like it just washes over them just like everybody else?
1: I would say that you're underestimating the voters in the 48th district. They're very engaged. They're very aware. Um, we have a very educated uh, electorate out here. Um, I will say one of the challenges, and this is one thing I hope to um, remedy, which is, you're not supposed to have a second full-time job keeping an eye on your legislators and what things they're trying to sneak through without you noticing. Um, We need uh, to go back to the standards that used to be in place where there was a certain amount of time in which bills had to take to pass absent an emergency so that the electorate had time to weigh in. And so they had time to ask their representative questions and they had time to give their representative feedback to make an informed decision that represented the interests of the people who sent them to Frankfurt. Um, And so the folks in the 48th are very, very involved. I've told people many times, we may be majority Republican, but we're not majority stupid. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah no yeah that that uh that that is certainly true of the 48th probably true of, of most districts but you you just never know you just never can tell um you know while you were in frankfurt for those two years you made your, you made a name for yourself as a champion for government transparency and open elections and i mean you know you were there from 18 to 20 and of course 2020 has made those issues so much more partisan Um, I mean, do you see yourself continuing to work on these issues if you are elected this time? And and how do you expect that work to change if you pick it back up? I mean, do you do you expect to have the same kind of partnerships across the aisle that you did before? I mean, how do you see this this issue changing? And what do you see as the prospect for change around those issues as we move forward?
1: Well, in in some ways, although 2020 made that issue somewhat more partisan, the um, pandemic necessitated an opening of our election process. We now have for the first time early voting without an excuse. Um, You know, that is a big change for Kentucky so that it will facilitate people getting to the polls. Um, So there have been some positive changes already. I'd still like to work on getting our polls to stay open later than 6 p.m. We are one of the few places, states in the nation where polls close that early um, and although as a person who's involved in politics, I like getting the results earlier, the reality is that if you, particularly for folks who live in this district, to get from a job downtown to your polling place in the evening, if there's traffic, if there's a car accident, if you, today's a perfect example, if God forbid it rains, Um, getting there by 6 p.m. can be a challenge. Yeah. And if you're raising children in the morning when you're trying to get school drop-off and all that stuff done, that's a bad time too. So to have the flexibility to stay open till 7 and be sure you could get there in time to cast your vote would take a lot of pressure off of parents who are trying to make it home, get to participate in our democratic process and still get supper on the table.
0: Yeah, that's an issue we've heard you talk about before. It's an issue that I'm especially passionate about. I mean, we are the first state in the country that releases their results. That's not something to be proud of, I don't think. I think that that is something that we should probably look at, and I've been saying that for a long time. Glad to, I was, I was glad to have you as a leader on that issue when you were there. One of the reasons I hope you go back. Um, one of the things that we've talked to, to, with you about several of the times when you've been on the show before is, um, you know you often will have an idea and you'll work on it as you get feedback, you'll be listening to people and, and and, you know, you will change the proposals that you have based around feedback or conversations that you have around stuff. And, and, you know, that's a mark of a good legislator, I think, is somebody who's listening to their constituents or their voters. And as somebody who's a candidate right now, not necessarily an incumbent, um, you know, are there issues that you're hearing about more often, you kind of alluded to it at the beginning when you said that, you know, the issues that the people in the 48th care about are not the ones that are being addressed in frankfurt what are those issues what are the issues that you're hearing about in the 48 that you think are getting ignored by the folks in frankfurt
1: funding our public education system um, education is huge out here and we have great schools in the 48th district um, people are frustrated we see all this effort to fund money toward private and quasi-private schools why don't we have that program for public education if the legislature won't use those dollars to fund public education and they desperately want to give tax breaks to people for supporting education, let them support public schools. So people out here are very concerned about the dismantling piece by piece of the KERA and the success that brought to our education system. So those things are of concern. The other thing we're concerned about out here is crime. Not that this is an unsafe place because it's not, overwhelmingly. But certainly we're concerned as we look around and see crime rates going up. And you can't ignore the fact that the Republicans have been in charge for the past six years and all crime has done is go up and up and up. So it's time to have a different focus. We can't, as a commonwealth, we can't afford to lock up every person who commits a crime. It will bankrupt us. And eventually those people will exit the, jail, the, the prison system, at least we hope, and we need to be putting them on a path to greater productivity, re-engagement in society, and there's been no focus on that. We simply can't repeat the chant of lock them up because that doesn't get us anything except spending all of our money on imprisoning people and not on making them productive members of society.
0: Yeah. uh, And, and, you know, those are issues that I've certainly heard uh, across the city and across the state um, from both people running for office and just uh, folks who are voters. Um, And of course, there's the issues that you hear about at the door that the people seem to be concerned about. And then there's other issues that, you know, you may be uh, personally, uh, you know, passionate about. So are there any other issues that we haven't really talked about that are important to you that you would like to address um, that are important to you as a person if you make it back to Frankfurt?
1: Well, not just to me, but. To uh, the women and men that I've talked to, um, the issue of choice and reproductive freedom, and protecting our children who may be the victims of rape or incest, weighs heavily on the minds of voters out here. And we are we are overwhelmingly, I get this at the door all the time, very concerned about the path that Frankfurt has gone down on this issue.
2: Before we let you go, you know the legislature, especially the Democratic Caucus, has. Undergone significant changes since you first started running for office in 2016. From your perspective, what are some of the ways um, you think your service in the legislature will differ differ from previous years? And you know, what could people expect from you that they didn't see in your previous term if you're elected?
1: One thing I learned. Um from my time in service was that there are members of the Republican Party who are interested in doing common sense work that's important to Kentucky. And I will make a greater effort to find those people and work with them to pass bills that are common sense and bring economic benefit to the state And to the people who live here. Um, I believe that if we can address some of the issues with wages in the state and getting people a living wage so that parents can be home at night to raise their children, take those cell phones, make sure they go to bed and supervise homework, it will help a lot of other issues that are going on in our schools. It will improve education. Kids need parents. One of the things I'd really like to see us do Is work on things that allow parents to be in the home in the evening to parent their children. Children do a bad job of raising themselves.
0: Yeah, I, I definitely agree totally that there is a huge and important um, role for for family policy on in the Democratic Caucus, and th- those are major issues. I think that that um, are important to most of the Democrats across the state. Um, and, and glad to hear that they're uh, they're important to you as well. All right, so we are, I believe, as of today, thirteen days away from Election Day. Sorry,
1: we're not counting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. No, counting. no one's counting.
0: We we certainly have a lot of listeners in the Louisville area. We're you are running if they want to help you out how can they do that how can people get connected with your campaign
1: you can go to maria for all connected no capitals although i don't know that it matters um, you can reach me through facebook you can reach me through twitter and instagram and you can call me at 502-622-8690 or you can email me at Sorolis, S-O-R-O-L-I-S, the number four, K-Y, at gmail.com.
0: All right. Well, Maria Sorolis, thank you so much for joining us today. We really do appreciate it.
1: Thank you. Y'all have a great night.
0: Jasmine, how can people find out about us?
2: They can find us on Twitter and Instagram, at Pod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash Podcast. And we are part of the Demcast Network and the Forward Kentucky Network.
0: All right, everybody. Thank you for listening, and we will
3: see you next week.